listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Ron Har. Ron has all corners of the state covered. Born in Memphis, raised in Bristol, high school in Chattanooga, college in Knoxville, longtime Chattanoogan who spent many days in Nashville at the state capitol. Ron's career has included time in major companies like AT&T and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee. From 2012 to 2014, Ron was president and CEO of the Chattanooga Area Chamber of Commerce. Ron was named Best Chattanoogan by the Times Free Press, Best of the Best in 2014. Ron, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk to you about your professional journey and second career as a boat captain, let me ask you, what's in your morning cup? Well, it's a Dasani water at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's no fun. Yeah, I need to change that. I've already had my morning cup at home, but hey, I'm delighted to be here, Mike, and I appreciate the invitation, and uh, I'm proud of what you're doing. Well, thank you. I remember you and I met when you were in the television business. We and did. I was working for Blue Cross and Communications, and I had been on the board of the UT College of Communications. And they said to me one day, probably would be a good idea if we had some new blood from Chattanooga. <laughs> and I said, amen, I've done this for 12 years. And so I remember giving you a call and you said, oh, my God, I'd love to do that. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate that because I really enjoyed that, being able to go back to the communication school and serve on that board and be on campus and do those things and have some input. That was a fabulous time. But I got to back you up. You didn't answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> About what's in my morning cup? Yeah, yeah. I, I know yeah. you got water now, and you had it yeah. earlier, but you so, scooted right over that. Okay, well, I am a coffee drinker. I cannot live without it, Yeah. but I'm limited to one cup a day. Due to caffeine? Yeah, I absolutely can tell the difference about sleeping at night and so forth later in the day if I don't stop drinking, you know, after my breakfast cup, but I can't get going without it. So I love it, and I think it's a great thing. I think it's good for your health. Do you put anything in it? I do. Yeah. It's like baking a cake. It's got sweetener <laughs> and cream. And, I mean, you know, the life depends on that when we're traveling. But yeah. uh, fortunately, my wife drinks it the same way, so it's easy. I can get up and make it for both of us and swap the cups, and they're exactly alike. Yeah. Well, it is a great way to start the day, and I'm glad you enjoy a, a nice cup in the morning, even if it is a birthday cake. <laughs> and I like your post that you've done on Facebook with all the different pictures of your different cups and settings. I think that's a great thing. Well, that was kind of the genesis of this. And, and I know I'm off topic right now, but I'll just give you that real quick. When I did my brief sabbatical in Montgomery, Alabama, or as I like to refer to it as purgatory. I, I remember that well. Yeah, not, not as well as I do. <laughs> now, I got to say, a lot of great people in Montgomery, yeah. and there's a lot of opportunity there. But you know, to stay in touch with folks each morning, I would say, well, here's what I'm doing. Here's my morning cup. So yeah. it, it kind of evolved into this. I want to go back to when I first met you, and, and you're right, we met when I was in the TV business. My first memory of Ron Har was I had been chosen to participate in, I believe it was the 2002 to 2003, or maybe 2003 to 2004 Leadership Chattanooga class, and met you through one of the programs there. But also with the chamber, I think that same year, we did a inner city visit to Huntsville, Alabama. And you had all these business leaders on a bus driving from Chattanooga to Huntsville, Alabama with Ron Har. And I think you may have been with AT&T at the time, or maybe you were already at Blue Cross because you and Patsy led this trip, Patsy yeah. Hazelwood. 
Yes. And you're standing in the front of the bus quizzing people, quizzing the bus on Tennessee history. Wow. I do remember that now that you're bringing it up. Yeah. What a great memory. I think the question that stumped everyone was what was the name of Tennessee before it was Tennessee, when it was still part of North Carolina? I think it was Franklin, wasn't it? The state of Franklin. There you go. Yeah. You know, it's funny. In retirement, I've had more time to go back and study history and look at my ancestry and things like that. And I've really enjoyed that. Yeah. I never cared about it in high school. It's like, please don't make me study that. <laughs> and now I just can't get enough of it. And I think it has such bearing on where we are today. Those things, you know, hang around for a long time. They do. And, and let's talk a little bit of history because I want to talk about your journey. Yeah. You're a very accomplished person. You're now retired, loving life, doing a lot of things. But you started out, I mean, born in Memphis, raised in Bristol. You get to Chattanooga because you go to Macaulay School, correct? I did. I came here as a boarding student on a train. That's how old I am. So 1968, I come down here, the very first trip, you know, my parents drove me, but the subsequent trips, you know, after holidays and stuff, whenever possible, I took the train, the Southern Pelican from Bristol to Chattanooga. The interstate was not finished. The Southern Pelican. Yeah, the Southern Railroad, and the Pelican was the name of the train. It went to New Orleans. Then the school would meet me at the train station in a station wagon. You know, it was a good thing, but being a boarding student is basically a five, six-hour drive. That far away at age 14, I think it made me become independent at an early age, whether I wanted to or not. So You were 14, six hours away? Because I yeah. did that six-hour trip when I was 18, growing up in Memphis, going to school in Knoxville. And that was hard enough. Yeah. And, you know, the telephones were not like they are today. We would call on Sunday nights when the rates were cheap and talk for three minutes. And that was your exposure to your family. Yeah. So... Anyway, that was kind of a shock and and a hard thing to do. It turned out to be very fortunate for me because my dad, at age 40, had a massive stroke that year. And uh, things at my house were upside down, for sure. And I was down here in school with other people worrying about me. So I think it turned out to be a blessing. Yeah, have that school family around you. Right. And it was a great school and still is. I mean, academically, I think it, no doubt it put me on a great track. And that took you to the University of Tennessee? Well, by way of Washington and Lee University. So WNL. In those days, you know, Macaulay liked to send their graduates to small private schools and avoid the big land grant universities. I wanted to go to UT, but they talked me into going to WNL. And then that year, well, it was the end of the Vietnam War and the draft and crazy things going on in the country. And I just I didn't like WNL. This journalism school there was not nearly as good as the one I ended up going to at UT. But at any rate, a year there, and I knew I was leaving. I came back the next year to Knoxville and loved UT. Loved Knoxville, loved the courses I had, the education that I got there. And I'm a big, proud supporter of UT. Yeah. Now, you mentioned your dad had a stroke, and your dad passed away at a young age. Yeah, so then the year I transferred to UT, he had another stroke-like event, and he didn't survive. So how old were you when this happened? I was 19, I guess. That's an awful young age to lose your dad. Yeah. And it was also my meal ticket to college. So, you know, this was one of the things I loved about UT. I immediately went into the Daily Beacon and I said, I need a job. I need some work. And they said, you're hired as a photographer because I had learned that at Macaulay and knew how to process and print my own film and stuff. So they gave me daily assignments to go around campus. And I was in the middle of everything. I didn't know you were a photographer yeah. at the Beacon. I knew you had a love of photography, but I didn't know from where it came. 
Yes, so uh, that was a great way to be immersed in everything going on on campus. Sideline passes to the football games, to the basketball games. To When Elton John came and played, I was 10 feet away from him taking his picture. <laughs> so I was in the middle of things and loving it, and it paid for my tuition. That's fabulous. It was a great experience. So you graduate, you don't automatically go work for AT&T. No, so that was a really tough time in 76 in the economy. Oh, it was horrible. You remember <laughs> gas lines and all those things. And I was really worried about whether I would have enough gas to get to work. I mean, that was how tight things were. So Yeah, because you could sit in a line for hour, two hours just trying to get five gallons yeah. worth of gas. I was looking all over the state, anywhere else, for a job. And, you know, I had this BS degree from UT. Well, so did a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. And anyway, it was hard. So one of the things that I sort of fell back into, I went out to an advertising agency in the west part of Knoxville, and the owner of it hired me to manage his photography division and motion picture and audio taping and you know all the production departments, they called it. Which and agency was that? Lavage and Associates. And uh, everybody there called it Lavage Graduate School. And uh, it was a great job I did for two years. Managed a lot of catalog production. We had a great client list, some in Chattanooga. Mm. So... That was a good thing. And so after two years of that, though, making $6,000 a year, I said, hmm, I'd like to get married. I'm not sure I can afford that. So I started looking around for a better job and ended up landing a job in Nashville, working for what was then Bell South in the communications department, or we called it corporate communications. So I was writing speeches for the president and press releases and explaining why our rates were going up and all those fun things you do in business. So you were writing a lot of speeches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of speeches. But anyway, it was, it was great training, again, sort of graduate school for what I had studied. And in, let's see, 1984, when the company was broken up, I got assigned to go with the parent, AT&T. That's what everybody wanted. Right. And I felt fortunate. And they said, well, we'd like for you to be our government relations slash communications guy for the state of Tennessee and Kentucky. And I did that for a couple of years, and I just really didn't like it. Let me back up to that a little bit. You're at Bell South, and they break up in 84. You're So I was 30 years old. Yeah. So you're 30 years old, and they're saying, we want you to be our statewide guy. That doesn't just happen. What were you doing that really set yourself out? Um, first of all, when I got assigned to AT&T, my boss was in Atlanta, and I went down there. We were all getting to know each other. There were nine states in that region. There were probably five of us. A couple mm -hmm. of us had two states. And uh, my boss and I just really clicked. He That's said, here's important. what we need to have done, and I'd go do it. And we uh, liked each other personally, too. Can that go back to the old saying of part of someone's job is to make their boss look good? Absolutely. <laughs> and also, I learned a lot from him. Yeah. He was this gregarious, smart guy. And we had a lot of legal and political issues going on. We'd just gotten broken up by the government. And a lot of these states were then going, oh, wait, wait a minute, well, now maybe it's our turn. So it was difficult work. I traveled a lot. I was in Frankfort, Kentucky a lot mm. and knew nothing about the state of Kentucky, didn't know anybody there. So you got to go in and introduce yourself to all the elected officials. And I'm this guy from Nashville. And they were kind of like, who cares? Yeah, looking at you a little suspiciously to begin yeah, with. Yeah, yeah. But that was really good for me. It sounds like your boss was a mentor. He was from afar. It wasn't like he was there every day, but we talked a lot and uh, we grew to like each other, but not enough that I didn't leave. So <laughs> in 86, I'd had enough of that and I was traveling a lot and uh, I just didn't want to be a quote lobbyist. That was more of my assignment for AT&T than it had been in my previous job. So I was in Nashville meeting people and walking around town doing what I do. 
And a guy that owned a big communications firm there saw me at a public event one day, and he said, by the way, if you're ever looking around, please give me a call. And I was like, well, I'm looking around right now. <laughs> so I called him the next day. Anyway, his name was Jeffrey Bunton, and he owned the state's largest advertising agency at that time, which was called the Bunton Agency. Still is today. Isn't and it? it's still in business, and maybe the biggest, or it's certainly among the biggest. And uh, he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to help me start a public relations subsidiary. I'm losing a lot of my clients to PR firms because the communications world was changing. And I said, I can help you with that. So I did that for a couple of years, and I had a lot of fun clients. Someone we've had on the podcast earlier, Roy Vaughn, met you through your time in Button and talked a little bit about you're mentoring him as a young public relations professional. That is a great story, and I'm glad you reminded me of it. So to support my profession, if you will, on a volunteer basis, I did some work with the Public Relations Society of America, and they were having a some kind of an event at MTSU. And I went down there to speak. They had a panel of speakers and people that were in that profession talking to students. And after that hour-long you know, meeting, this fresh-faced young man comes up to me and sticks out his great big bear claw <laughs> and says, Hi, I'm Roy Vaughn, and I'm a student here, and I'm just you know glad you all came down to speak to us. And so I stayed afterward with him and talked for about an hour, I think, a long time. And just I remember thinking, wow, what a, what a great guy. And he was so interested, genuinely interested. So he and I hit up a friendship, and he was getting ready to graduate, I think. So when he graduated, he called me and said, I'm looking for a job. And I said, I'd love to talk to you. So he came up to Bunton. And we hired him in the PR division at Bunton. And I already knew I was leaving, but I didn't tell him that. I think he mentioned that. He has mentioned that (laughs) most of the rest of my life. So (laughs) anyway, he came to work there and then I left. He kind of took my job. And what the reason I was leaving was Bell South, which was now a separate company from AT&T, had called me and said, we'd really like for you to come back. We've never really filled your job. In the interim, I had two babies and health care and all that stuff. And You had I, life right in front I of you. I had life, and, and they had good benefits, and I knew everybody there, and they were welcoming me back with open arms, and I got a promotion out of it. And yeah. So you asked how I got to Chattanooga. Right. So I was doing that, and the president of the company and I would travel some together on state visits. I remember we went to Centerville one time, and in the car one day he said, do you want to be a communicator, PR kind of guy your whole life? And it was like an accusation. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Like, Don't you want more, son? Yeah. And he was an engineer. You know, most yeah. everybody, all the top management were engineers. And I said, well, no, I really don't think so. I mean, I've done this for a long time now. And why do you ask? And he goes, well, I just wanted to know because if you're interested in kind of getting your hands dirty in the business, I could probably help you with that. And I said, well, yeah, I'm interested. Well, like a year went by. It was a long time. And he called me in his office one day. And to your point, he said, aren't you from Chattanooga? And I said, no. He said, well, I thought you went to Macaulay. I said, well, I did, but I was a boarder. He said, oh, okay. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. We got a job in Chattanooga, and I need for you to go do it. And I said, okay, what kind of a job? He said, well, we have a business office there. That's what they called it at the time. And it was a call center where all the calls came in, people wanting to order new service or make changes. Anyway, it was a totally different job. It used none of the technical training I'd gotten in school, except for it was managing a big group of people. And the person who had been there before me had ticked off a bunch of the workers. And so I came into it not in a way that was very welcoming, if you know what I mean. Like, oh, great. They've sent us another one. Let me ask about how you got to that point. It's not like you were just riding in your car with their boss and he says, oh, have you ever thought about this? 
you've been doing things and proving yourself to where you could have those conversations along the way. It's not like they just anointed you. Yeah, I did some good things and got recognized for it. And again, I got along well with my superiors. And how important, and I'm asking this because there's things people can learn from it. How important, in your opinion, is it to build that relationship with your immediate supervisor or your boss to where you can have those kind of conversations? Of, because I think there's a fear in people, younger people, who say, you know what, I can't go and tell my boss I don't want to do this the rest of my life. They'll get rid of me tomorrow. But where can you get to that point that you have that relationship that you can say, look, here's what my ambitions are? It was interesting. He asked me, wasn't that I had to bring it up? It's a good boss. It is. He was a great boss and a great person. And I had a lot of those, and I had some really bad ones. But you learn when you've got a good boss and somebody who cares about you how to nurture that relationship, and it's a two-way street. Also, I learned something about myself. When I came to Chattanooga to manage that call center, I didn't know anything about it. It was another language. They spoke, you know, 1FBs and 1FRs, but I actually enjoyed it, and I enjoyed the people. I had a great administrative assistant, and she came in shortly after I'd gotten there, and she said, Ron, do you mind if I give you some advice? And I said, no, Shirley, please do. Uh, You're not eating enough of their food on Wednesdays. They brought in food to the Like a potluck? Yeah. And I said, well, Shirley, I just don't eat that much. (laughs) God, Uh, they would have loved me. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they said, really, you'd have been it. Anyway, she said, now take some of everything or you'll upset people. And I said, well, what am I going to do with all this? She said, so much well, the competition. She oh, you said, well, mine. you've got a plastic liner in your trash can. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, are you kidding me? What she said, just don't get caught. And I said, okay. So anyway, it was great advice. Yeah. If you look at it from the other perspective, you got everyone bringing in something. And you know what? Ron got a big helping of your potato salad. But you know what? My sardine toast just sat there. Yeah. And it would have. (laughs) But anyway, it it was really great advice. She came to me a year later and she said, by the way, do you know what they call you behind your back? And I said, oh, God, do I want to know this or not? She said, no, you want to know this. They call you Papa Smurf. So then I start noticing around on their workspaces, they had these little figurines of the Smurfs. Yeah, but what a great term of endearment. I mean, you got Papa. I guess. And I really, I did enjoy that job. It was a... Highly unionized environment. We had a lot of grievances, and I had to get to be friends with the union steward. We spent a lot of time together. That probably served you well, your stint at the chamber with Volkswagen's potential unionization. Yeah. Before we get to that, you went Bell South and then to Blue Cross? Yes. So I had gotten this great promotion from the Chattanooga job to Knoxville, where I was the district director. I basically was the head guy. I had a committee of every operating department that I managed. And so it wasn't like they were my direct reports, but we ran everything in that district as a team. So it was a great team building exercise without having direct control over them. And I was really enjoying that job. First of all, my bosses were in Atlanta. I was a long way from— That's always a plus. It's a plus. <laughs> my golf handicap dropped a little. Um, you know, but we also were getting a lot of great work done. And uh, I was sitting there enjoying that job. My kids were elementary school age, and life is good. And I get a call out of the blue. Somebody I knew and said, hey, a Blue Cross has had a major change in management. Got a new CEO. And the new CEO is looking for a communications government relations executive. And I'd really like for you to go meet him. And I said, well, I don't want to move back to Chattanooga. And this friend says, well, I don't care if you want to or not. 
I'm interested in doing some business with them, and I'd like <laughs> to be able to deliver them a good candidate. So all you got to do is go down there and eat lunch with the CEO. So I drove down to eat lunch with Tom Kinzer, who was the new CEO. And I'd been there about an hour, and I went, oh, my God, this guy is the real deal. And to make a long story short, my lunch turned into all afternoon. And at 5 o'clock, I'm ready to drive back to Knoxville. And uh, he said, look, uh, we need to continue this. Let's talk some more. And anyway, it turned out to where he offered me the job. And it, it was a real game changer for me because I was then a part of the senior leadership team. And you got to work for Tom Kinzer, pretty remarkable guy who's willing to help you. But he had a saying, when I first got on the chamber board, I believe he was either the chairman or past chairman, but he had a great saying about boards of directors. Boards of directors should be hands-on, but fingers off. That made so much sense to me. Well, he was a very wise man and a great leader. He completely rebuilt that leadership that the company had stagnated a little bit because they were behind on data processing. And, you know, obviously, if you're processing billions of dollars worth of healthcare claims, it's nice to have computers that work. <laughs> so that was the first thing he worked on. And, and then he changed the marketing arrangement where brokers were allowed to get involved in selling Blue Cross business across the state. And to make a long story short, that management team of eight or nine direct reports and Tom, we moved the needle on the business in Tennessee from 25% of the health insurance business to 65%. My goodness. Over a couple year period. It was unbelievable, unheard of. Yeah. And so it was really fun to be a part of a team that was pulling together, working together. We didn't spend any time fighting, which was rare. And we had great success. We did install a new computer system. Things improved for our customers, for us. We grew and made a little tiny bit of money, which they say you couldn't do in that business. If you were going to grow, you had to lose some money to do it. So anyway, I give Tom the credit and also the rest of the team. We had a, a great team, many of whom I still visit. Well, a, your previous jobs prepared you for that. Absolutely. But it was different being in the leadership team because then if things weren't right, it was our fault. We had to eat our own cooking. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit because a lot of people get promoted from within or into other organizations. When you are in, in that executive leadership team, how is that different? Well, there was nobody else to blame the decisions on. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to have someone above you to blame uh, them on. So that was 1995, and that was the beginning of TenCare. And the government was expecting Blue Cross to cover the losses in TenCare with our reserves. And the point we were making was – these aren't your reserves. These belong to our customers. And in fact, in the law books, they're referred to as epidemic reserves. And most people aren't aware of that. I mean, it was the concept is that you have a big you know, base of investment that you could spend down if an epidemic hit the mm -hmm. state, you know, something like COVID. Mm -hmm. Imagine that. People in 1945, when those laws were written, had seen the need for that. So the state was trying to say, no, spend your reserves on taking care of the state's population. And so... I was really in a hand-to-hand -hand fight with the legislature, governors, and pretty much came down to me and Tom. We were in his car going to Nashville, getting yelled at and berated by government leaders for not spending our reserves on their idea. I bet that windshield time you and Tom had together was like a, a graduate school lesson. It, it was unbelievable, and it was very tense. There were times when Tom would look at me and said, you know, we're betting the company here. Wow. 
and they drew caricatures of Tom at Christmas time as Scrooge. Because, you know, we, <laughs> it, it, it was really tough. We had a young lady, an infant in Upper East Tennessee who was dying of a congenital deformity. And we had a judge that ruled we had to pay for a $2 million surgery. And so the media was saying, are you going to appeal this? And so I'm dealing with this on my own. And I knew that that was never going to fly. And I had a microphone stuck in my face by a TV station, maybe yours. Probably. <laughs> and they, the reporter said, are you going to appeal this decision? And I said, without talking to Tom or anybody else, no, we're not going to let dragging this out stand in the way of doing what the court has ordered. And I came into the group meeting the next morning. I was late because I had another interview. The thing was, you know, on fire. And when I closed the door to take my seat, the room got quiet. Oh. And I'll never forget, Tom Kinzer looked over at me and he said, well, if it isn't the $2 million man. <laughs> And I remember the blood draining out of my face, and I thought, I guess I'm headed somewhere else to work. And uh, after he let that pause hang there and let everybody in the room worry about it, (laughs) he said, look, I've hired every one of you to do your job to the best of your ability. And, Ron, I think you made exactly the right call on that. There's no point in our appealing this. And the way it will look, people buy health insurance because they expect it to help them when they need it. And even though this is an extreme example and it's not really correct, this helps secure their feeling in what we do for a living. So you made the right call, and I want everybody in here to know, make your own decisions. Use your own brains. You don't have to come back in here and do it as a team. What a great lesson and a way to operate, because you could have appealed. But Blue Cross Blue Shield would never be the good guy in that equation. No matter what you did, no matter how right you were, You'd the, be screwed. The young lady had the surgery and died two weeks later. I mean, yeah. what we knew would happen, but it still, it was the right thing for our perception in the community. And so we had some really tough battles like that. And then, this is the crazy part, a few years later when Tom retired, the, the company asked me to head the care division. Well, you know, I'm <laughs> not a health insurance guy, but they said, you've been arguing it pretty well in the newspaper. I think it's your turn to do it. So I did that for five years, and it was 700 employees yeah. and billions of dollars worth of health care. Uh, it's where I got all this white hair. Uh, <laughs> you but, look pretty good for 37. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been a long year. Anyway, uh, it was an interesting career path for a guy who's the communicator. Well, you're the communications guy. You take over the 10 care aspect of it, but that's not how you finished Blue Cross. You went into the senior VP yeah, HR. So, so I had done that for five years. CEO calls me one day and said, we got a problem in HR. The person that's over that just didn't work out. And I really need somebody to head HR. And I said, what a problem. What are we going to do about that? And I said, well, how about you? And I went, do I do HR and TenCare? (laughs) And no, there are other people at TenCare that can take that over. And so we want you to be the head of HR. And I just remember shaking my head going, I don't know anything about that either. But that's where your Bell South experience came in in helping to change the culture there. Yeah. And the, the HR employees had a good sense of humor about it. They'd known me for a long time. And the first time I walked in to be their boss in the team meeting, and, you know, there were 30 or 40 HR people. It was obviously with five, 6,000 employees. It was a big part of the company. And they looked at me and were teasing me. They said, well, we know what you're going to get fired for. We just don't know when. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to open your mouth and say the wrong thing. So I worked really hard for five years not to do that. And that was a tough job. I really didn't. I can't say I loved that. 
Well, as an employee, anytime you see HR, it's one of three things. You're either brand new and getting oriented, you're in trouble getting reprimanded, or you're getting fired, (laughs) which is hard. Uh, So that was a tough assignment. But I met a lot of great people in in that job and in that division. And uh, I just can't say enough about how much I enjoyed being at Blue Cross. I think I was there 17 years total. And uh, it was and is a great company. And what they do for the state of Tennessee is so huge. And then, you know, Roy ended up, went to Bunton, and then he started his own company. And then I hired him to come to Blue Cross. We just have been kind of stuck together, whether we like it or not, for most of our lives. Well, and that theme in your career and a lot of people's career are those relationships, because you don't know who you're meeting at 25 or 30 or 35 And here we are, I'm 60, and those relationships are still there, but we all work with each other throughout our careers or think of each other or recommend each other. Yeah. And then you don't waste that first three months of getting to know each other. I mean, the second day he was there, we knew exactly how to relate to each other and get it done. So Roy and I are lifelong friends, and I don't see him much anymore because he's working too hard. Guess what? They asked him to be the head of HR, too. We've had exactly the same career path, so... Right. We don't see him much anymore because he's working a lot harder than both of us. That's right. And speaking of which, you're now retired. You've still got your love of photography, I'm sure. I do, yeah. Mostly of, you know, grandkids and travel photography. But But you started a second career of a boat captain. And I'll try to make that brief, which, you know, I'm not good at anymore. (laughs) Um, But I've had a lifelong love of boats. It actually started when I, I was a boarding student at Macaulay. On weekends, they would take us out, get us off campus and keep us out of trouble. And I got introduced to small boat sailing, canoeing. And in fact, I think part of the reason I stayed in Chattanooga so long is that I really loved the outdoors and the exposure I got to the outdoors at Macaulay. So one of those things was sailing. And I told myself when I first started working, as soon as I get $300, I'm going to go buy myself a boat. And I did. I bought a little sailboat. So in the mid-90s, right when I came to Blue Cross, before I got the job, I had made plans to go down to the British Virgin Islands and charter a big sailboat for my family and another family of four. And I said, I don't want to go kill these people. So (laughs) I want to go get some training. And I went and got a captain's license. Years later, after I retired, the River Gorge Explorer, which, you know, was operating on the waterfront, they were looking for part-time captains to keep their boat going when the regular crew was on vacation or in the hospital or whatever. And they looked me up in the Coast Guard thing, and I had this master's license. And they said, are you interested in doing this? And I'd retire. And I went, drive that thing? So like I ran, a kid, I went you? running down there, and they gave me some training. And I started piloting that. And I did that for three years until they sold the boat, which I really hated because I think it was so good for Chattanooga. And you know, now we wonder why the waterfront is declining. And first of all, the number one attraction's gone. At any rate, that was a great experience, and I loved it. But in between that, you were president and CEO of the Chattanooga Area Chamber of Commerce at a particularly difficult time when Volkswagen has come, and there's a unionization effort. So I imagine all that time at Bell South benefited you through that process, too. Well, I'd left Blue Cross and retired. I got on a big sailboat and left town. And I was sailing around Florida. I spent Thanksgiving and Christmas in the Keys. Sorry. Yeah, it was a really tough assignment. <laughs> anyway, so I did that, and somebody called me. A good friend said, hey, the president of the chamber is retiring. We're looking for good candidates, and you've been the president, chairman of the board. You know this thing. We'd like for you to apply. So I applied, got the job, and did that for three years. And in the middle of that, you're right, the whole issue about Volkswagen came up. 
um, I really was not allowed to deal with that at work. It wasn't part of the chamber's mission. So all of the support that I did on that, I had to do on my own time and at night and sort of in the cloak of darkness, which I hated. But uh, it was important. What happened was the, the, the Volkswagen company in Germany was very supportive of the plant being unionized. And all we were trying to do was to let the workers there know, here are the pros and cons. You make the decision, but here are the pros and cons. And the cons were not being told. So I did my communication thing. I hired people to help me put together CDs that we put underneath windshield wipers and flyers. And we had meetings where people would come talk about the issues. And I, like I say, I was doing all of that at night on my own time. And at the end, you may recall, I got subpoenaed by the NLRB. And you know, it, it was very intense. It was a contentious time. It was a tough time. And we won by 13 votes. When I say we, that the, the plant remained union-free by 13 votes. And all those experiences of your career really came into play. It was sort of the ultimate communications challenge. You had a fascinating journey when you retired, sailing your boat down into the Gulf and around Florida. But really, your career is a fascinating journey, too. Well, hey, you know, the best thing about my career, and I think about this now that I'm retired, I never did the same job for more than about three years. I had a string of 12 or so jobs that each lasted about three years. But you were learning something new every time yeah. and putting that in your quiver. Yeah, and a lot of my friends who went other career paths have been doing the same thing yeah. over and over again for 40 years, and you know they don't like that. It's all, well, you've been fascinating, Ryan. You always are. But I, I do want to ask you one final question, and, and I want you to think about this a second. What would you tell your 25-year-old self? is really important for a happy life. Hmm. I think I waited too long to take responsibility for my own career. I felt like a, a steel ball on a pinball table. You know, just whatever bumper knocked me one direction or the other, I kind of went That's with. That's where you're going. Yeah. Then I learned I was sort of in charge of some of those flippers on that table. There were things that I could do to send my career in the right direction or not. And I, I waited too long to learn that and to do that. You know, looking back, as you say, did I really have control to do that early on? Maybe not. Uh, but I had taught myself that I had a lot more control than I thought I did. Well, you know, to use your pinball analogy, you may not have had control of those flippers, but we all know from the old pinball tables that if you put the right lean into it, That's you can right. influence it a little bit without it tilting. Yeah, and if you did get a, a good flipper and it sent you to the top of the table again, take advantage of that. And if every now and then you go out between the flippers and ball over, that happens too. You know, as I mentioned, I had some terrible bosses along the way, because we all do. Mm -hmm. This is life. It's a long career. But I appreciate your question, and it's an introspective one about what I would do different. I think I would have started a little earlier managing and working for my own career rather than kind of sitting back and just trying to do a good job and yeah. wait for somebody to recognize me. Yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying. Just be a little more proactive for myself. Yeah. Well, great advice. Great conversation. Always enjoy seeing you. Don't see you enough because your grandkids are keeping you busy. Well, and I know that's preferable to seeing me. So yeah, it okay. really is, Mike. I'm so <laughs> glad you recognize that. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and talk about it. Thank you for being here, Ron. It's good to see you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.